Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and to make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father. And if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. In you I find my joy. Happy Easter. Have we said that? <laughs> uh, so good to be with you guys. Um, go ahead and, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 24. Or if you have your phones, flip, scroll to Acts chapter 24. That's where we're going to be this evening. We have, uh, as a church, been in a series on the book of Acts. And um, if you're new to the Bible and you're like, Acts, books? I thought this was one book. Well, it is one book now, as you see it, but it is full of books. It's full of letters. It's full of stories. And Acts is one of the best stories in the Bible. It's um, full of action. That's why it is called Acts. And uh, we're going to be in chapter 24. Really, um, the story that Acts tells is the beginning of the church. It's the beginning of what we're a part of right now. And um, essentially, 2,000 years ago, in the aftermath of a murdered Jewish man, people begin to say that that man had been resurrected, and his followers began these little communities of people who believed this truth. Now, the way that the book of Acts ends is with this particular church starter named Paul. So there's all these church starters going around starting churches in the Mediterranean. Paul is like the most prolific of the church starters. So he, the, the way that the book of Acts ends is it kind of narrows in on this story about this one church starter named Paul. And here's the deal. Here's what you need to know to kind of bring you up to speed. The Jewish leaders of the day hate Paul. Paul's teaching stuff, that, teaching stuff that's not in line with the way that the Jews had been taught, with their theology. And so they really don't like him. In fact, Paul, they, they hate him so much that Paul ends up before a Roman court because of their accusations. And after some debate, they get to the reason why. Paul kind of verbalizes the reason why he's standing before this Roman court. So look down in your Bibles, Acts chapter 24, verse 20. He says this, these who are here, speaking of those Jewish leaders, these who are here before you and bring charges, ask them if they have anything against, they should bring charges if they have anything against me. Or, oh wait, hang on, I got mixed up. Or, sorry, these who are here should state what crime they have found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Verse 21, he states it right here, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. And here's what he shouted. It is, because, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. So the Jewish leaders are saying, Paul's this guy, he's going, he's stirring up things, he's giving these weird theological teachings, he's totally out of line, and Paul's like, actually, it's because of the resurrection that I am on trial today. 2,000 years ago, Paul stood trial for saying Jesus was resurrected. And all these years later, when you really think about it, the resurrection is still controversial. The resurrection has been the reason for belief or unbelief. It has been stumbled over or it's been cherished. It has been mocked or it's been held onto. It is the reason for rejection 
or for adoption. And I want to say today on Easter that the resurrection is still the ancient reason for life in this age or death in this age. Life in the age to come or death in the age to come. Flip over in your Bibles to chapter 26. Chapter 26. After this moment in chapter 24 where he says, it's because of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you today, two years go by with Paul sitting in jail. And Paul finds himself, after those two years, before a Jewish slash Roman king, this kind of mixture of Judaism and, and Rome, named King Agrippa, Herod Agrippa. And after telling his testimony, because Paul has quite the testimony, he was riding his horse one day, and he was knocked down to the ground uh, from a vision of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus himself standing before him. So he tells him this story about this encounter he had with the resurrected Jesus. And, and then here's what happens. Look down at your Bibles. Chapter 26, verse 28. Then Agrippa said to Paul, Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Why would Paul say that? See, see in our culture today, why not let everybody just believe what they want? Are you saying, Paul, that Christianity is the best way to live? How narrow. But Paul said it. <laughs> I wish that you, King Agrippa, were like me. Why did he say that? Because the resurrection, the message of the resurrection is the solution not a solution to the problem of humanity, but the solution to the problems of humanity. See, it can get confusing today, culturally speaking, with so much of Christianity being taken over by other agendas that you actually forget what the core of Christianity is, and the core of it is the resurrection. So let me ask you this evening, and here's a question I want us to ponder for just a moment. What do disciples of Jesus believe? What do disciples believe? Well, they believe a few things, and if you're taking notes, I think you should write these things down. The first thing that disciples of Jesus believe is this. Humans were created for glory. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 teach us that humans were designed by God, not to be controlled by God and manipulated by the gods, but to expand God's good rule, expand Eden, in a word, through agreement and partnership. Through the agreement and partnership with humanity, God's intent was that his good rule would spread throughout the world. Humans, in a sense, were designed to rule. But things go sideways. If you know Genesis chapter 3, things go sideways when humans choose to not listen to God or to ask God about decisions or about what is true. And when humans do that, when they don't listen to God and they don't ask God about what they're seeing around them, they end up in sin. See, disciples, secondly, believe that sin is real. Disciples of Jesus don't ignore sin or believe that truth is relative, changing with popular opinion. See, God created a good world and sin is like vandalism, 
like the breaking of a window or spray paint on the side of a beautiful building. It's vandalism on the overall function and well-being of God's good world. It's a big deal. Sin devalues people. It turns us into slaves of dysfunction. We begin to make excuses for why we do what we do when we hurt one another. So thirdly, disciples believe there must be payment and justice. You look around you at the world, and you, and you can't ignore sin. It's so impossible. You, you, the cry of our culture now is, there must be payment. There must be justice. I remember I was taking a yoga class one time. <laughs> See, that, that preaches differently in Newburgh than in Portland. I was, ta- <laughs> I, I was taking a yoga class one time, and... Uh, and I remember, uh, we're, you know, it was, it was a good kind of yoga class. It was mainly just stretching, not a lot of the weird spiritual stuff. I'm taking this yoga class, and uh, the yoga teacher, she starts saying, just release your anger into the mat. I'm like, what? She's like, Re- just release your hatred of your father into the mat. I'm thinking, dang, projection much? She's like... <laughs> Just, just put it into the mat. And I remember just being there thinking, the mat's not big enough to handle my sin. The mat's not big enough to fix the brokenness in our lives. A couple months later, I found myself at this concert. And it was right after the San Bernardino shootings, mass shooting in San Bernardino, California. And so I'm, I'm at this concert, and it, um, it, the shootings had like just happened, I think even that morning. And the lead singer at one point um, kind of pauses the, the concert and he's like, there's a ton of crap going on in the world. There's a ton of bad stuff out in the world. But what they can't take away from us is dancing tonight, is having an amazing time tonight, getting totally wasted and just partying. And I was just thinking, I was like, the dancing won't fix it. Like, it doesn't do anything. The drinking doesn't fix it. The, like, trying to forget about it doesn't work. Because sin steals the original intent of God away from humanity, there must be a cosmic solution. Do you understand what I'm saying? There has to be something from outside our world that can correctly judge what happens here on earth. I say this all the time, but history will not be your judge. There's a lot of worry today. What if I end up on the wrong side of history? Well, history won't be opening its books at the end of your life. God will. And so the question is this, what kind of judge do we have? What kind of judge do we have? If there's gonna be a judge who's gonna judge my life, the good that I've done, the bad that I've done, what kind of judge is it? I know that I need it, but what kind of judge is he? Fourthly, disciples believe that Jesus was both God and man. All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, maybe jot that down. It's an incredible passage. There's this prophetic utterance that there would be a human who comes and crushes the head of the serpent, that, that lying snake who originally caused humans to sin, to step outside of the will of God, to give up their rulership to him, rather than ruling over the serpent. And it says, one day there will be this offspring, this seed of the woman who crushes the head 
of the serpent and does away with him forever who rules over the serpent rather than is ruled by the serpent. And Christians, disciples believe that Jesus comes as that human, as the son of man, to be what humans were meant to be and to bring about justice from the outside. Lastly, disciples believe that his resurrection is your resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says this, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits, everybody say that with me, first fruits, of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, think Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, think Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. We are in spring, and there's a reason why uh, in the church calendar, Easter falls in spring. Because we're in a season where things are starting to bud and to break open and to come to life. And we're looking at these trees and we're seeing the first fruits of what is inevitable, of what is to come. His resurrection is your resurrection. He's the first fruits of those to come. But his resurrection also has implications now. Jesus once said to somebody who was curious about his world and about him, he said to them, you must be born again if you are gonna see the kingdom. To participate in God's invisible rule becoming visible, you need to get a whole new life. You need a whole new life. You, you, cannot, you cannot see it with the life that you've once had. You have to be born again. You have to die. You must die to the old way of living. You have to say, God, I need your help. Sin has wreaked havoc on my life. I can't save myself, and I'm humbled before you. Please help me. And right there and then, you get a relationship with God where you start to see the world the way that he sees the world. You start to see things that you never believed were possible actually happen. Resurrection has implications today. Now, maybe you've heard all that. You're like, oh yeah, I know what Christians believe. I know what disciples believe. But I want to show you why you need them to be right. Why you need them to be, why you need it to be true. Why you need the resurrection to be true. See, the first reason why you need the resurrection to be true is atonement. It's because of atonement. Though many in our culture feel the effects of sin, whether it's personal in their own home or whether it's on a cultural level, we have no way of dealing with it. We feel it, but we don't know how to deal with it in our culture today. I want you to imagine this. Imagine that I go out and I buy a new car. I'm really excited about this new car. I've been saving up for the new car. I go and I buy this new car and bring it home. And I invite my friend over. My friend comes over, and I know that he has kind of a sketchy driving record, um, but I think to myself, you know, it's just down the street and back, no big deal. He's like, I wanna test drive it. I'm like, okay, all right, you can test drive the car. So he hops in the car, and it's way more horsepower than he's used to. He pushes on the gas, and he just goes straight into the fence at the end of my street. Just crushes, truck crushes the fence, scratches it all up. It's a disaster. There's a debt at that point, isn't there? See, there's a cost. And here's the cost. The cost is, I take the hit and I buy a new car. 
you ruined my car, and so now I have to take it, I have to buy a new car. Or I have to live without it. Okay, well, you ruined my car, and so now I don't get a car anymore. That's the cost. Or there's another way that the cost can be paid. He buys me a new car, right? That's a good one. <laughs> See, sin is actually very similar to this. All wrongdoing incurs a debt in our world. There's a cost to our actions. There's a cost to the way that we live. When we take from someone, when we treat someone without honor, when we abuse someone, there's a cost. And whether it's personal offense or whether it's abuse or whether it's a social misstep, we have a culture now that demands atonement without the concept of forgiveness. It demands atonement, but it has no concept of forgiveness. Our culture is terrified of sin. It's terrified of sin. And our culture believes that if we just don't think that sin is real, maybe somehow we can make it go away. We are so afraid of sin in our culture that we will do anything to expiate the person out of our midst, to get rid of the person of sin. This is cancellation. This is what you are seeing happen on a cultural level. Destroy their life over any discovered sin, no matter how long ago it happened. Why? It's because we fear sin. We fear it as a culture. We know it exists, although most don't want to name it. We are terrified of it. It's get away from me. It's salvation is now social opinion, so I need to get this black mark as far away from me as possible. You are canceled. See, what we're grappling with as a society is essentially a society that believes nothing is wrong. There's no such thing as right or wrong, but some things are wrong. Those things just tend to change all the time. And we have no way of dealing with those wrong things without destroying the wrongdoer. No amount of apology can suffice or atone. So, what do we do? We cancel them. We destroy them. What the gospel says is, yes, sin is real. I'm glad you're waking up to it, culture. Sin is real. It has a real effect. But the good news is that there is a way forward, a way to get atonement without the destruction of the sinner. See, Jesus was destroyed. He was forsaken by God so that we could be forgiven. He took the cancellation so that we didn't have to. Colossians chapter two, Paul says this. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. What does that mean? I mean, it's beautiful language, but what does it mean? What it means is that when my sin was killed, Jesus was killed. When my debt was killed, Jesus was killed. In other words, Jesus paid the cost. Jesus stepped in, being God, being the designer of the world, being the one who all sin was against. He had the ability and the right to forgive, and so he did. See, you need the resurrection because you need atonement. You need atonement that doesn't destroy the sinner 
but reconciles the wrongdoer and the, the person who's been wronged. You need it. Secondly, the reason why you need the resurrection to be true is you need to have a solution to the problem of self-righteousness. You need a solution. You're like, is that really that big? It's a huge deal. Many see that this is the problem with religion. What religion does, what Christianity does, what Catholicism does, is it creates an in-crowd and an out-crowd. It separates people. It makes people think that they're better than others. That's what's wrong with religion, and that's what's wrong with the world. Well, I want to propose to you this evening kind of a version of how self-righteousness develops. And I want to argue you don't need any religion for this to develop. See, if you live without personal forgiveness and love from God, then secretly, right before you're about to fall asleep, you will begin to feel badly about yourself because of all the things that you've done in the past. And you'll remember them. And you'll think, could God ever accept someone like me? And the enemy comes in and he whispers into your ear, you're right, he'll never accept you. Remember what you've done. The enemy then lies to you. And he says, hey, if you just compare yourself to someone who's worse than you, then you will feel better about yourself. But in fact, you feel worse. Because the scriptures say, to the degree that you judge, you will be judged. So your judgment on them puts you in chains. And with every judgment you make about somebody else, I'm better than them because of this. I'm different than them because of this. I'm an exception to their situation because of this. With every judgment, you're placing another chain on yourself. And the lie of self-righteousness is that your chains are actually a sign of your virtue. You begin to cherish your chains because they stand as marks that you're better. At least I'm not like them. What the resurrection does is it breaks you out of this vicious cycle because it says all sin and all will die. But there's a solution for all people. Not just you, for all people. John says this in 1 John, speaking of Jesus, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. See, what this means is that our message can never be, as Christians, I've found the path, I've found the way, I found the item or the experience or the morality that sets me apart. No. Death is so universal that the solution to it is also universal. Should humans choose him? Should they want him and his death and resurrection to become their own? The message to all people as a disciple is this. Come, find forgiveness and find new life. Lastly, you need the resurrection to be true because you need a life without fear. You need a life without fear. See, death is, for most people, the greatest fear in life because death is such an unnatural, for being so natural, it's the most emotionally unnatural occurrence in our world. 
And most of us seem to know this deep down. It's like, you know, you get the phone call from the doctor that you were waiting to get and your heart begins to pound. You, you, you see the fire sweeping down the hill towards your town over the summer and, and your heart begins to pound. You hear of somebody that is close to you who is in a car accident or, or, or a sudden illness befalls yourself or somebody that you know. And all of these occurrences seem to rock us at our core and grab onto us and shake us and remind us of our imminence. That we are mortal beings. And yet, we just know there's something in us that says it's not right. It's not right. Anyone who has lost somebody important to them knows that there has to be something more. Can that be the end? I remember when my grandma passed away. I was very close to her. I remember thinking, you cannot fit the, the largesse, the, the, the life of that woman into that casket. There has to be another expression of her life. It's so unnatural. And so I think that we live as humans in this tension of the fear of death and yet trying to make the most of every moment that we possibly can in this life. And I think that this tension causes many problems for people today. See, a, a wise friend of mine once said this. This is worth taking a photo of. Get your, get your phones out. All external conflict comes from internal conflict. All internal conflict comes from fear. All fear comes from a false view of yourself, the world, and God. All external conflict that you see in this world comes from internal conflict. All internal conflict, that comes from fear. Fear comes from a false view of myself, of the world around me, and of God. Fear is the base of all issues in your life. You're like, why is the world so messed up? Fear. It's fear. What if I don't have enough? What if they don't fill in the blank? What if I can't? What if I lose them? What if I'm not actually in control? And as trite as it may sound, this is why faith in God is the answer to the fear that you feel so profoundly. Speaking of Jesus, the author of Hebrews writes this. Since the children, speaking of us, have flesh and blood, he, speaking of Jesus, too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all of their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Are you in slavery because of your fear of death? Are you afraid? What the resurrection of Jesus forces you then to think about is this. Do you believe that God came as a human? Do you believe he rose from the dead? Do you believe that his resurrection means something practically for your life today and into eternity? If Jesus was resurrected, let's just say that he was. If Jesus was resurrected, then death no longer is more powerful than God. If he was resurrected, then I would argue anything is possible. 
you can now really live totally free from fear. God defeated death. Why do I need to be afraid? God defeated death. I know where I'm going. It's faith that is the answer to fear, not medication through the luxuries of life. So, so, so here's what I want to do. Let, let me end by simply asking you this question. What if it is true? What if he really did defeat all sense of physics and there really was a first century man named Jesus of Nazareth who bodily rose from the dead? What if it is true? Look, it's a faith leap either way. Either you're going to make a leap of faith to believe that he isn't who he said he was. And he didn't do what people who were alive within the lifetime and death of Jesus said that he did. That's a faith leap. You can make that faith leap. There's also another faith leap. What if he is who he said that he was? What if he really did rise from the dead? What would that change for you? See, this is the solution. I don't see any others. I don't see any other solutions, any other ideas in life that simultaneously humble you, make you more forgiving and loving, gives you courage to to look at death and not shudder, and promises life forever with God and loved ones. I don't see any other solutions like that. I see solutions that make me more self-righteous, I see solutions that place me above my fellow man, but I don't see any solutions like the example of Jesus who says, lay your life down. Why is Jesus the only way? How narrow? Well, what if he's the only one who came for you? So what if it's true? I spent some time in Jerusalem, uh, gosh, that was like, yeah, five years ago. And um, when you go to Jerusalem, there are several different sites where people think Jesus was buried. Uh, You can get like a tour guide and he'll be like, all right, we'll go to like the four different tombs of Jesus. You're like, four different, what? You're like, wait, I thought there was one tomb. What are you talking about four different tombs? And the reality is this, is that the early church and Christians lost the tomb. They never recorded where the tomb was. And so there's some ideas about where the tomb was, and and some are more valid than others, but nobody is 100% sure where the tomb of Jesus is. See, Christians in the first century didn't seem to care about where Jesus was buried. Why? This is a historical reality. See, most important people's graves become places of veneration become places of great importance, become places places of pilgrimage, but not his tomb. Why? Because his tomb didn't mean anything. See, if he was still in there, it would be venerated. It would certainly have been known about by the elite of the Jewish leaders. Even if the early church wanted to spread the rumor falsely, and write a tome about the resurrection, that they're lying. That's the tomb. It's right there. Whenever, um, very um, sad, but whenever a child passes away, 
their room becomes somewhat of a shrine. Things are left just how they last left them. But when the child is alive, the room is simply just like any other child's room. The significance of the room comes when the child is no longer there. And that room becomes a link to the child in a spiritual sort of way. Why did the early church not do this if Jesus was truly dead? If he was truly gone? Because they had him. He was alive. So, do you have him? Because that's the question. We have pages and letters written about the lives of people who had him and, and what changed. Do you have him? Because when you have him, and when he has you all who belong to him, his resurrection becomes that ancient reason that you will lose your tomb as well. Let's all stand. Thanks for listening. And if we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website, saintshill.church. And you're so